Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وبعد Brothers, this is Friday of course We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for bringing us on this uh, blessed day a weekly Eid You know, the Friday is also a day when the uh, salawat gets magnified, gets multiplied when we make them to Rasulullah, you know, all the actions get presented to him. He said, "Tu'adu alayya amalukum, ma min khairin hamitullah, wa ma min sharrin yisafartullah lakum." So he says, "All your actions are shown to me. Whatever is good from the actions of my ummah." So they brought up to him, and he sees them. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Each and every person's actions. Ma min khairin hamitullah alayhi. Whatever is good, I see of my ummah. I say, Alhamdulillah. Whatever is bad that I see from my ummah or is shown to me from my ummah, I, I, I ask Allah to, for your forgiveness. But except Jum'ah, except on Friday, I directly hear it and I directly reply. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us when He says in the ayah, Allah wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala nabi. Ya ayyuhalladhin amanu sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima Allahumma salli wa sallimu barik ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad Kama sallayta ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim bin alamin inaka hamidu majid So we should try and make the salawat as much as we can Especially on a Friday, every day, anywhere, anytime, anyhow um, but, but multiply it on a Friday Now, of course we can't miss the news yeah, about Donald Trump What I want to do in the next, and I will try, I will do it in half an hour. I want to, I want to try and box it in half an hour. Um, I want to talk about the things that we can, some of the things that have been confirmed for us about the American election. Um, and then I want to show how, you know, the democratic system really is a, is a failure. Is a failure. Then I want to mention what then is the alternative vision. What is the alternative vision that Islam offers? And I want to do that through the inaugural speech of Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq عنه, when he was elected as Khalifa to Rasulullah and he was elected as the Khalifa after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa and then how that beautiful speech has got about seven principles you know that underpin Islam's vision Islam's political vision, you know, and, and it's quite apt uh, how that speech beautifully summarizes at that critical juncture uh, what the vision for the Muslim Ummah should be, and that vision should be our vision. So I want to share that, and then we can open it up for Q and A. All right, so on to American politics. Yeah, now there are a number of things I think there are many, many, many things 
but I'm just going to mention a handful to you that uh, things that are confirmed that we already know but we just want to you know just put a highlight on them about the American elections we know for example the American elections is an example of what they call gutter politics gutter politics and that is you know personal insults demeaning each candidate demeaning each other even if it means stooping low lying you know the debate isn't about really substantive policies but rather attacking each other's personality it's a kind of ad hominem field day who can make the best attack grab the media headline who can make up slurs make up lies even you know something that was quite common from the 60s actually or began from the 60s in America so there's no debate really on policies but it was more about each camp attacking the other camp so that's what they call gutter politics we know that that's very well known in American campaign politics the second thing that we know and it's going to be ongoing it's not going to stop it didn't stop with Obama it didn't stop with Bush before him and it won't stop with Trump it won't stop with any president that succeeds Trump and that is the politics of fear and paranoia in America the American elections has definitely been about fear and paranoia you know Trump has you know has had has made in, in his rhetoric has been incendiary it's been divisive racist you know, uh, deporting what, 11 million people, ban all Muslims, I want to talk tough with China, that kind of thing, you know, and getting applause from the crowd. So, is that sort of, uh, very sort of hate-filled rhetoric, but more, to, more channeling fear, especially away from sort of uh, the internal systemic problems, but directing it towards vulnerable people in the community but in this time immigrants and Muslims yeah but I'll come back to this point as well about Islam and Muslims so that's the second thing we learn a third thing we learn um, is what they call neo-orientalism yeah that's just a posh way of saying there's an idea called that Edward Said coined called orientalism and what that is is it's a way the West looks at the East when they mean the East, they mainly are talking about the Middle East and the subcontinent. Yeah? They can go beyond that, but the focus is that area. How does the West define the East, in this case, predominantly Muslim lands and Islam, understand it and then depict that? Often, the West has always looked at the East, has looked at the Islamic world as being this kind of exotic, you know this sort of greedy, this sort of um, you know, hungry, sort of insatiable people, yeah? And, you know, they, they can't control their passions. They're a bit dumb, yeah? They're not as advanced and developed as the West. So, Trump's campaign, commentators were saying, carried on medieval tropes, medieval themes about Islam and Muslims. So, he, you know, he was quoted as saying, Muslims, they all hate us. They're not coming in. Are you in USA if I'm president? You know, things like that. And commentators tell us that 
the overall framework that the West uses to look at Islam and the Middle East is that the West is a beacon of democracy and full of uh, and a graduate of the Enlightenment project, i.e., we're intellectually advanced, and the Muslim world is mired in backwardness and they're intolerant, and so every other. So everything about Islam is defined in this way. So we, the West, have to come and liberate Islam from this backwardness. So, one commentator mentioned the following, I'll just read it. The Western notion of democracy does not accept anything outside its borders. It is important to note that the terrorism America experiences is actually a result of imperialist relationship with the Middle East. Trump and his supporters vilify those who follow Islam which in turn places Americans above Muslims. Muslims have been demonised to a point where Trump felt the need to reiterate an urban legend of executing people with bullets dipped in pig's blood, directing it towards Muslims. This is an act of victimisation, but it is slightly in reverse as Trump acts as though America is a target. All the while the nation actively participates in airstrikes in the Middle East as a way to dissipate violence and assert its hegemonic role as a peacemaker in the world. Trump acts as the poster boy for American exceptionalism, which only fuels more misinterpretations towards Islam. And this is a non-Muslim, by the way. Yeah. So the campaign brings out this what they call neoliberalism discourse. Trump is defining Islam a certain way, as all American presidents have, and all American presidents will continue to do. They have an agenda of the Middle East based on this kind of idea that Again, democracy, secularism, capitalism is superior. The world needs it whether it likes it or not. The world, world needs it whether it likes it or not and we will force it on the world. Another point that we can confirm from the American elections is that this election is for millionaires and billionaires. Bankrolling the campaigns, the millionaire, these millionaires and billionaires have, been, have bankrolled the campaigns for their policy interests. That's why they call American, you know, this crooked casino capitalism. Yeah? This kind of gambling capitalism. And it floats the rich ever richer. You know, and it flushes out the general working people, you yeah? know? So, one commentator said on this, American society is morally bankrupt and politically broken. And its vision of the future appears utterly dystopian. As the United States descends into dark abyss of an updated form of totalitarianism, the, un the unimaginable has become imaginable. In that, in that America has become possible not only in that it has become possible not only to foresee the death of the essential principles of constitutional democracy that America apparently upholds, but also the birth of what Hannah Arendt called the horror of dark times, the politics of terror, a culture of fear and the spectacle of violence dominates America's cultural apparatuses and legitimate the ongoing militarization of public life and American society. In other words, America's sinking you know, further and further into decline. What else do we learn from the commentators on the election? America is a society where not all people do well. Not even many people do well. But a handful of millionaires do, and billionaires. So, Trump, I remember one commentator, as soon as he won, I can't remember if it was Fox or CNN, I can't remember, it was one of the two, 
where she said that, oh, isn't this great? This is the American dream. You know, Trump, a non-politician, has suddenly become the president of America. But we know, you know, he's never ever been detached from politics anyway. He's always been involved in politics. And he's always had close advisors with him. You know, he's, people have always sought interests, you know, because he's a, he's a billionaire, he rules power. You know, so... But I remember there was one quip by George Carlin, I said, I think he said, the reason why they call it the American dream is because you have to be asleep to believe it. Yeah? So it was a nice quip. But okay, so... You know, America is only serving the, the fortunate few. Only, it's only serving the interests and the happiness of, of a fortunate few. Now, according to two studies, one done by a professor in Harvard, one, di- one done by Northwest University in the States, capitalist America, they argue, and this is actually a trend by sociologists as well, they're saying that America is now the most unequal of all the developed countries in the world. Of all the developed countries, advanced countries in the world, America is the most unequal. So they, they want to now class America officially as an oligarchy. A country run at the expense of its citizens by the super-rich. So, the Harvard professor, he's quoted as saying, when a majority of citizens disagrees with economic elites and or with organised interests, they generally lose. Moreover, because of the strong status quo bias built into the US political system, even when fairly large majorities of Americans favour policy change, they generally do not get it. Why? Because it doesn't serve the interests of certain companies powerful people they continue well, he continues we believe that if policy making is dominated by powerful business organisations and a small number of, number of affluent Americans then America claims to be a democratic society are seriously threatened so America oh I've got the references here I mean I, I can read them yeah, in, the, in, in the Q&A democracy is failing according to who? not according to Muslims, according to Americans themselves. In a survey done by The Economist, a quarter of Americans born since 1980 believe that democracy is a bad form of government. Many more than, than 20 years ago. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a one done by The Economist. The congressional leader, Ted Daly, he remarked, more and more Americans have a vague and increasing sense that our government is simply incapable of addressing basic challenges like immigration, guns, entitlements, trade, climate, environment, privacy and security, the federal budget, spiralling inequity, money in politics, or even a health emergency like the Zika virus. So people are lambasting their politicians for not even being able to deal with basic things, basic issues that are affecting people. People hate, Americans hate yeah, their Congress so much that the public, uh, the public policy survey said two years ago our newest national poll finds that Congress only has a 9% favourability rating with 85% of voters reviewing it in a negative way. We've seen poll after poll, poll after poll over the last year talking about how unpopular Congress is but really what's the difference between an, an 11% or a 9% or 7% favourability rating. So we decided to take a different approach and test Congress's popularity against 26 different things. 
And what we found is that Congress is less popular than cockroaches, traffic jams, Genghis Khan, and Nickelback, yeah? So, and that, that might sound a bit, you know, funny, but this is, this is a serious poll. The final thing that we sort of can... As what, what was confirmed for us for the American elections is that, you know, a lot of commentators have said that this is really the voting has been kind of a protest vote. People voting for Donald Trump because out of anger, the disillusion with their own government, you know, with a system, they're angry with the corruption, and the fact that their government doesn't genuinely have any concern about the general people. So that kind of anger has driven them to vote, you know, emotionally, to vote emotionally. So, you know, this is, this is what commentators have always uh, said, and they make the, obviously the comparison with Brexit, Brexit being apparently the same thing, like protest vote, people that wouldn't normally vote, Brexit voted it out of anger, but, you know, they've got no other option except these two options, and they, you know, a lot of them didn't want to vote Clinton because of her, her reasons, um, and so they voted Trump. And if you look at the sort of breakdown of the votes, you see quite surprising communities voted in favour of him. Not because they particularly wanted him, but because they were just, you know, this, it's just this kind of uh, trapped vote. There's nothing really else that they can do, but just out of anger, vote for someone who they didn't really want. So these are just some sort of background, just a sort of a sketchy picture about, you know, what we've probably already known about the American elections and kind of predicted analysts and commentators have already sort of forecast. So, you know, we're in no doubt, you know, we're in no doubt that, you know, this democratic political system is only serving the few, yeah, not the people. Yeah, we know that this system doesn't work. You know, the people under the very system are themselves, you know, heaving and groaning out of suffering and pain. You know, but this is where I think we can then give the alternative, you know, obviously for Muslims, but this alternative is for humankind. This is really where, you know, enter Islam on the stage. And we can give Islam's political vision. You know, how Islam is going to look at certain fundamental things about, about governance. And I, this is what I really want to uh, go into based on the speech of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an. So, you know, we as Muslims, you know, whatever the outcome of the American elections, you know, I'm not saying we're not, we shouldn't be interested in it, we should, of course we should be following it. Uh, Muslims in America, of course, will be even more, they'll have a better sensation on the ground about how things sort of play out in the next sort of uh, couple of months. But whatever goes on, whatever continues to happen, whatever policies eventually materialise, we shouldn't, I think, get mixed up in thinking we need to work within the system more to try and keep people like Donald Trump out. Try and change the system from within. Yeah, the system will change us. Yeah? We're not going to be able to do that. We, I think, shouldn't be engaging politically within the system you know, to try and get a louder voice or something like that. To try and give our sort of contribution. Our small voice, yeah? And we really shouldn't, so we shouldn't really be thinking about participating. We, should, we also shouldn't be thinking about supporting any of these, whether the Democrats or Republicans. 
You know, these, alaykum salam wa rahmatullah, we have no affiliation, we should not have any affiliation with these secular parties. Rather, our focus must be on working towards that Islamic alternative. That alternative that humankind wants, but hasn't, perhaps, hasn't yet seen an articulation of it properly. Or hasn't heard it enough. And that alternative, we know, is the Khilafah system. And how beautifully Abu Bakr Siddiq, radiallahu when he was elected by the Ummah, you know, when they give her consent for him to, her, her consent for him to be elected, how beautiful his speech was. And I want to go through it, um, sort of, almost line by line, because each has a kind of governance principle. Yeah? As a governance principle. Now we know that Islam, our system, uh, has been shown by Rasulullah and as mentioned in many hadith, one of them is Nasahih of Imam Bukhari, Rahimahullah, Kanat Banu Israel Tasuhum al Anbiya. In the the tribes of Israel used to be ruled by their prophets, politically ruled by, by their prophets. Kullama halaka nabiyun khalafahu nabi. Whenever one prophet passed away, another prophet will succeed them. But however, there'll be no prophet after me. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, but there's going to be no, no prophet after me. There'll be many, however, after me will come many khulafa. After me will come many khulafa. So the Sahaba asked, تَأْمُرُنَا يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ So what do, you, what do you want us to do, Ya Rasulullah? What do you order us to do? قَالَ عَلَيْهِ صَلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامِ فُو بَيْعَةَ الْأَوَّلْ فَالْأَوَّلِ Make sure you fulfill the contractual, uh, the pledge of allegiance to them, one, one after the other, one by one. So Khulafa are the successors after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Abu Bakr Siddiq was that first Khalifa. Now his uh, speech is mentioned in the Seerah Ibn Hisham. It's mentioned uh, in the Tariq of Al-Tabari. It's mentioned in the Al-Bidaya uh, Nihaya of Ibn Kathir. And Ibn Kathir says that the Isnad is Hassan. Isnaduhu Hassan. So it's a good chain of transmission, yeah? So what does it say? So what does Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu say? He says, أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ فَإِنِّي قَدْ وَلَّيْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَلَسْتُ بِخَيْرِكُمْ O people, so he's addressing everyone, I've been, I've been putting authority over you, but I'm not the best of you. فَإِنْ أَحْسَنْتُ فَعِينُونِي If I am good, then help me, you know, you, you assist me. You continue to help me. وَإِنْ أَسَأْتُ فَقَوِّمُونِي But if I do, if I go off track, Straighten me out. Straighten me out. If I go off track, straighten me out. Uh, telling the truth is amana. It's a, it's a trust. It's a trust. It's a responsibility. khiyana, And lying is treachery. The weak amongst you is strong in my eyes. حَتَّى أُرِحَ عَلَيْهِ حَقَّهُ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ And I will make sure that 
uh, they get what is rightfully theirs. The weak get what is rightfully theirs. وَالْقَوِيُّ فِيكُمْ ضَعِيفَ عِنْدِي And those who think they're strong from amongst you, or those who are strong from amongst you, you're weak in, in my eyes. حَتَّى آخَذَ الْحَقَّ مِنْهُ And the strong amongst you are weak in my eyes, and Allah, if Allah allows me to, I will make sure that I realize the rights from them fully. لا يدع قوم الجهاد في سبيل الله إلا ضربه الله بالذل. No people leave jihad except that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will humiliate them. ولا تشيع الفاء ولا تشيع الفاحشة في قوم قط إلا عمهم الله البلاء. And Allah will never when فاحشة when um, obscenity when sort of depra- depravity depravity spreads amongst the people know that Allah will extend his calamity and punishment over them then he radiallahu anhu says أطيعوني ما أطعت الله ورسوله obey me as long as I obey Allah and his messenger فإذا عصيت الله ورسوله فلا طاعة لي عليكم but if I fall away from disobeying Allah and his messenger then don't, don't obey me so that's the upshot of it. And remember Imam Malik radiallahu an he says uh, I'm not too sure if it's in his muwatta but it's mentioned in the history books and in the, in the biography of Imam Malik he says لا يكون أحد إماما أبدا إلا بهذا شرط He says no one can ever be an imam of the Muslims no one can ever be a khalifa of the Muslims unless he follows what these conditions are laid down by Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu So, what's one of the first principles that we can learn? What's the Islamic vision that we want to give? What is, what is it that we need to understand first about our political system? That the constitution is the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And that is clear from Abu Bakr Siddiq when he says, أَطِيعُونِي مَا طَعْتُ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ Obey me as long as I obey Allah and His Messenger. فَإِذَا عَصَيْتُ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَلَا طَاعَةَ لِي عَلَيْكُمْ But if I disobey Allah and His Messenger, there's no obedience for you and me. So the criterion here is following Allah and His Messenger. يَا أَيُّ الْإِذَامِ أَطِيعُ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ الْأَمْرِ مِنْكُمْ So obeying Allah and His Messenger is conditional. No governance can be sound Islamically unless it's based on Qur'an and Sunnah. So our constitution is not based on a group of people in a, Cong- in, in, in a in Senate, in a parliament, even clerics with turbans on their head that sit in a particular gathering. Yeah? We're not a clergy in Islam. We're not Islam, the Khilafah, the Islamic system is not theocracy. It's not theocracy. The right of citizens to account the ruler. If I do good, you help me, assist me. Carry on giving me your support. But if I do wrong, set me straight, account me. So accountability is part of our system. Accountability is part of our system. And we're obligated to do that. We're obligated to account the rulers and it's a duty on all Muslims to actually do it. And if uh, a Khalifa can be removed if he persistently, you know, falls away from the standards, ruling by the Islamic standards. If he fails to take if he, if, fails, if he fails in his duty, if the Khalifa fails in his duty to, to look after the affairs of the Muslims, then he, you know, he can be removed. He can be removed. 
uh, fourth principle then that we have establishing justice equity among the citizens and everyone is subject to the law and that's taken from وَضَعِيفُ فِيكُمْ قَوِيٌّ عِنْدِي and then وَالْقَوِيُّ فِيكُمْ ضَعِيفُ عِنْدِي and then you know that that is really one of the hallmarks of Islam you know that justice and I want to give you some quotes um, from the ulama about you know how we treat citizens and there's so many that we can get and I just want to read a couple for you Imam Imam Al-Qarafi, one of the top Maliki scholars, you know, w- taking on the works of earlier jurists, what does he say? Especially with regards to non-Muslims. He says, Rahimahullah, and this is in his book, um, I think it's Al-Furuq, I'm not too sure, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a massive, it's a voluminous work. Yeah? He says, Rahimahullah, إِنَّ عَقَدَ الذِّمَّ لَمَّ كَانَ عَقَدًا عَظِيمًا فَيُوجَبُ عَلَيْنَا حُقُوقًا لَهُمْ مِنْهَا مَا حَكَى إِبْنُ حَزَمْ فِي الْمَرَاتِبِ الْإِجْمَاعِ وَتَجْعَلَهُمْ فِي جَوَارِنَا وَفِي حَقِّ رَبِّنَا وَفِي ذِمَّةِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَذِمَّةِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَذِمَّةِ دِينِ الْإِسْلَامِ He says the Dhimma contract concluded with the non-Muslims is a great treaty, is a huge thing that establishes certain rights for them that we have to fulfill because they're under our care some of these rights are which Imam Ibn Hazm mentioned in his book Maratib al-Ijma' or the levels of consensus hence we keep the non-Muslim citizens protected in our proximity under the bountiful obligation of their rights prescribed by Allah the Messenger and the religion of Islam and then he goes on to talk about there's the Ijma' on this issue amongst all the Jewish and no one disagrees that the Ahlul Dhimma are under the protection of the Sharia we don't even have to look at the, the fuqaha and their statements because they took it from the, the, the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that's mentioned in Abu Dawood al-Bayhaqi and other books and Isnad is Hassan Isnad is Hassan where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he said أَلَا مَنْ ظَلَمَ مُعَاهِدًا أَوْ إِنْ تَقْسَهُ أَوْ كَلَّفَهُ فَوْقَ طَاقَتِهِ أَوْ أَخَذَ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا بِغَيْرِ طِيبِ نَفْسٍ فَأَنَا حَجِيجُهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Anyone, Rasulullah says, anyone, or he says, beware, sorry, alat, so that's a harfu tanbih, he's saying beware, means it's sinful. Yeah, whenever that harf is used, it's a strong indication of beware. This is not optional, you don't have a choice. Whoever wrongs a non-Muslim, or diminishes any of his social, economic, political, domestic, cultural rights or loads him with more work that he can bear i.e. you make his life difficult or he takes anything from him without his permission or, or by upsetting him then be ready for me I'm going to be the one who quarrels with him on your Yom Qiyamah there are many many generations that go on that talk about looking after the affairs of the people I want to read one that's related by Sayyidina Umar Ibn Khattab radiallahu anhumah and it's beautiful and it's mentioned in, in the early history books um, uh, what was it? Kitab al-Amwal uh, <coughs> Al-Qasim ibn Salam one of the early books that we use as well listen to this, it's beautiful because it just shows you the difference between how our rulers will look at their citizens and how you know you look at how Trump's talking today about minority before he's even in, in a campaign about being president and people are accepting it. 
So, عن جبير بن نفيس رضي الله عنه أن عمر بن الخطاب أوتي بمال كثير. سيدنا عمر بن خليفة he was he he a lot of revenue tax revenue was brought to him. قال أبو عبيد أحسب. So Abu Ubaid says, "Ahsibu, uh, uh, sorry, count, count it, count, count what we've got." Qala min al jizya is taken from the jizya, the tax. Fakala Sayyidina Umar now says, "Inni la adunnukum qad ahlatum al nas." I fear, I bet you guys have taken this tax by harming and burdening the people. Qalu la, no, we haven't. Ya amil mu'minin, we haven't done that. لا والله No, we swear by Allah, we haven't taken it in that way. ما أخذنا إلا عفوا صفوا We've only taken it without coercion or forcing. We've taken it from those who are eligible to give it. قال سيدنا عمر رضي الله عنه بلا صوت ولا نوت What? You've done it without harming anyone, without coercing or forcing anyone? You've not taken it, have you taken it with, uh, you know, Tenderness and care and ease. And then they reply, Naam, yeah, we did. Then Sayyidina Umar says, Alhamdulillah, الذي لم يجعل ذلك على يدي ولا في سلطان. Praise be to Allah that such injustices didn't happen while under my rule. So the first concern of Sayyidina Umar was, when you got all this money, is, I, I bet my tax collectors, they've been oppressing people and getting, getting taxes unnecessarily. And they're trying to say, no, 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 we haven't. We've only got the tax that we're eligible to take. And then Sayyidina Umar, and then Sayyidina Umar says, Alhamdulillah, that this didn't happen under his rule. Okay, the next one is, As-Sidqu Amana wal-Kadhib Khiyana. Truthfulness is, is a sacred trust, and lying is a betrayal. But we know that, you know, secular politics, lying is the game, isn't it? Lying is the game. Even if you have to make something up, you should make it up. Because the mere fact of denying it, people must think there's something about it. There's no smoke without fire. Yeah? So, uh, you know, and even the FBI will get in on the game, eh? Even the FBI will get in on the game. But in Islamic politics, it's about truth. Because it's the ayah shu'un in nas. Because in our view, politics is about looking after the affairs of the people. So nothing else. It's looking after the affairs of the people in a just way outlined by the Sharia. It's not based on lying, cheating, deceiving making pledges and promises and not delivering on them. Jihad is the basis of the foreign policy of the state. لا يدعو قوم للجهاد في سبيل الله إلا ضرمه الله بالظل No people, no group of people abandons jihad, the result is except humiliation. That is the foreign policy of the Khilafah. We will take and export Islam through jihad, that is the method. That's not why I decided, you decided a bunch of scholars decided, this is what Allah and his messengers decided, this is where Islam will be exported to the rest of the world. Yeah, now obviously jihad has bawabit, has rules and all that, and I haven't got time to go into them here, but you know, but that is the method. The last one is, لا تشيعوا الفاحشة في قوم قط إلا عمهم الله بالبلاء Then, he talked, Abu, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq says, when fahisha obscenity and depravity spreads, and in a nation, then calamity generally will befall them. Allah will extend punishment on that people. So the ruler, the people are responsible for ensuring morality is upheld, justice is upheld, there's no corruption in society. 
But in the West, we don't, you know, they're not really interested in, in meeting out corruption. They're not really interested in, uh, if corruption can pass, let it pass. Heck, if we can even be corrupt in election campaigns, that's not a problem. That's not a, that's not a problem. But whereas in his Islamic vision is, we want society to be, um, to, ca- to flourish in the way that it's supposed to do without being hindered by moral depravity, you know, sort of, uh, sort of corruption at a personal, social, you know, all, all stratas. So this is quite interesting that Abu Bakr Siddiq in that inaugural speech lays out a vision of, of what it is, the political vision that the Ummah should have. And that is the vision that we want to take to the rest of the world. That's completely different from what we've just learned from the American elections. And what we're going to see in the future, you know, as time goes on, is nothing new for us. But what we, so then what we should be engaging in is taking this message of the Islamic political vision to the Ummah. You know, and showing how, how different it is from the West. How different it is from the West. At the core, where the Qur'an and Sunnah, the Constitution, you know, then... Not only is that the constitution, we then want to, to say that uh, the, rights, the citizens have a right to account their ruler. And there must be transparency in that. We must establish justice and equity amongst all citizens under Islam. We have to have truthfulness in politics. Not lying or cheating or being treacherous. We have to be ready to export and take Islam for the rest of the world through jihad. And we must be ready to um, drive out immorality. Anything that breaks down society, whether on an individual level, social level, any aspect. You know, otherwise Allah's punishment will extend over us. So these are thought, you know, some of the things I thought I'd share with the from the beautiful speech of Abu Bakr Siddiq, because it really captures what the political vision is of Islam. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran Tafsir, and Sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.